Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Garay, TJ Beater, and Kathy Garay. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts. Yeah, welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets on a Friday. My name is Ego Goray, and today I'm going to check my ego and turn the hosting duties over to a friend of mine, somebody that I don't always, we don't always agree on everything, but we get along and we always are able to talk and learn a lot from each other. So let me welcome in today's host, Mr. John Parker. John, it's all yours. Thanks, Rory, and uh, uh, thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited about our our, ho- our guest today. Uh, I met John Dalton about 2010 when he, of all things, judged a, a confirmation show at the Aspen National Greyhound Specialty Lure Coursing Meeting, and we've been good friends ever since. Uh, John, for those of you who don't know him, is the third-generation member of the one of the preeminent greyhound families in Ireland, the Daltons, and he's got a he's got a lifetime of um, greyhound experience. I actually envy him. I got into greyhounds when I was in my forties. John got into it when he was a baby. So, John, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, tell us a little bit about your family's uh, greyhound background in uh, Ireland. I believe it started with your grandfather, whose name was also John. Correct. That's correct. Started with my granddad. I mean, back in those days, obviously, it wasn't a business. It was more of a hobby. You know, you had a you had a, a regular job, and you had your greyhounds on the side, and and uh, it was more for fun than anything else. Uh, things changed a little bit, you know, with my dad because uh, he was the first one that decided he wanted to make a career out of it. Uh, and back in those days in Ireland, uh, to come to your parents and tell them that you wanted to uh, go into the dog business when there really wasn't a business, as opposed to getting a job, it would be uh, right up there with having somebody today tell you that they wanted to join the circus. No, <laughs> no offense to the circus. So and uh, John, was your grandfather well uh, received? Did he do, did he do uh, racing and coursing, or or did he? Did he predominate in one over the other? I, I'm not really sure, to be quite honest with you. I mean, you know, obviously he wasn't around back then. Um, I don't know exactly how much racing there was back in those days. Or, I, I mean, you know, my dad was born in the 30s, I believe, uh, 36. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how much racing there was as we know it today. Um, I'm yes. sure it would have been probably more coursing. Um, but, but there, there was some actual track racing, but again, you know, a, a hobby type situation. Yeah. You know, one of the things I admire most about, uh, the Irish Greyhound folks is, is their ability to continue, continuously, uh, inculcate young people for a love of Greyhounds and Greyhound sport. I, I love to watch these or see these videos or photos from the coursing meetings and from the racetracks of kids all the time. You see these little yeah. red-headed, cherry-cheeked Irish kids, cutest things in the world, standing there with a greyhound. Maybe they're going to lead him to slips or take him, take him up after the race or, or whatever. And I think it's just a marvelous thing. It's something we really need to do a better job of uh, here in the U.S. Uh, so um, let's talk a little bit about your dad, John, Pat Dalton. Greyhound Hall of Famer, a real pioneer in uh, bringing Irish Greyhounds over to uh, to the U.S. to race. How did he get started with that? Yeah, he's he's a tough act to follow. Um, then, now, at any stage, uh, he he first came over in the in the '60s, I believe, in the early '60s, with a team uh, for Board Nagan, um, which is the Irish Greyhound Board, which would be the equivalent. Of, of our NGA, um, and uh, you know they they came out to promote the Irish dogs and the Irish bloodlines and and you know to see how they would stack up, and you know that was kind of the start of it. Uh, after that, he started bringing out teams of his own dogs, 
that either were belonging to other owners that he had leased or that dogs that he had bought or dogs that he had bred. And, you know, it, it went from that to um, the, the, the booking situation, much like we know it today, even though it was a little different back in those days, the, the concept of a year-round booking, you know, back then, it, that wasn't there. Uh, everything was seasonal. You know, you, you ran in Florida in the wintertime, and then you packed up all your stuff, and you drove to New England in the summertime. Um, you know, year-round racing didn't come till much later, but you know that 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 was that was the start of it was was bringing over teams of dogs to compete in high-profile races, and and then it it kind of went from there. Yeah, I I, I was going to tell a funny story about the first time I met your dad, which is three or four years ago at an NGA uh, meet national meeting there in Abilene, Kansas. Um, I knew he was going to be there because you were going to be there. And uh, uh, I was kind of starstruck. I, I said, I, you know, I just thought to myself, you know, I'm meeting this Hall of Fame guy. And I, <clears throat> I just hope I don't say something stupid about greyhounds while I'm in his presence. And so he, uh, I was out there with my friend David Strickland. And uh, for, for, in some way, we, got, uh, we were out to dinner with your dad, just the three of us. And um, it was a fabulous conversation. I, I learned... <laughs> in about an hour, what I'd otherwise learn in a week. And uh, we talked about coursing, and we talked about some of the great coursing greyhounds of Ireland. Of course, the subject got on to Master McGrath, and I asked him if he knew the words to the uh, the ballad of Master McGrath, and he broke into song and knew every, every lyric, every stanza of the song. It was great. And uh, so we Don't ask dinner- me to repeat that one. I'm, I'm afraid I don't have that skill. <laughs> The dinner was concluded, and we had fully expected that he would be our guest, and we would buy his dinner. And nope, he absolutely insisted that that he uh, that he buy dinner. So I felt pretty special to be um, I bought 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 my dinner by a famous greyhound guy like Pat Dalton. Uh, wonderful well, man, he's, nice he's gentleman. Always, he's always yeah, more ahead. comfortable talking about dogs than than anything else, and uh, <laughs> I mean. The, the the whole Hall of Fame thing, while obviously, you know, he appreciates the respect and the honor and, and, and all of that, but it, it does make him uncomfortable. He's much more comfortable in a in a casual setting uh, or working on the farm or working in the kennel. And believe me, he doesn't he doesn't consider it work. I, I mean, <laughs> to him, that that's what he loves to do. And, and, you know, he's always said that he was fortunate enough to be able to make a living. That's something that he loved, and uh, you know, I guess that's that's all any of us can ask for. Yeah, absolutely. What uh, tell what what are some of the f- famous greyhounds he's best known for? Oh God, I mean, there's so many. I I, I guess I guess probably the, the big one back way back in the day would have been Rocking Ship. Um, you know that th- that was an Irish bred dog that 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 uh, my dad had bred uh, and that that went to Florida back when the when the business was in its heyday and and he was he was a marathoner uh, which is you know highly un unusual for Irish bred dogs. Um, you know then he had associations with Downing. I mean they trained him. He didn't breed him. He was actually bred by. Uh, somebody that lives here in Texas, a good friend of my dad's called Jim Frey. Um, and, and he was, you know, a, a machine on the track and, and equally uh, impre- Im- impressive in the, in the bloodlines. I mean, anything that you, anything that you pull up, you'll find Downing back there somewhere. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and then in, in later years, uh, I, mean, I mean, you know, we had brought back a lot of the better dogs when, when when we started the farms and, and started bringing back the American studs back to Ireland to cross with the Irish females, you know, dogs like Ceylon and Four Real and, and a, a host of them. I, I mean, anything that was successful on the tracks here and, and that, you know, he thought had a bloodline that would mix well with the Irish females, you know, we brought them back. They didn't all work, but, you know, some of them did and, and were were very dominant. I, I mean, Ceylon probably being uh, the most dominant of the group. I mean, all through my childhood, uh, I, I mean, he was he was the dog that uh, 
the stud dog on our farm that was that was most heavily used. And and I mean and that was back in the days when there was no AI or you know splitting of of uh, samples or anything like that. It was all natural mating. Um, we just didn't have the the choices that are available today, you know. So yeah. you you didn't get that you didn't get that situation where you have one dog, you know, having five hundred matings in the year and and totally dominating the scene, and and then you know the the, the bloodlines tend to get very top heavy, yeah, because everybody yeah. wants to breed to the popular dog. So let's shift a little bit and talk about you and your youth in uh, in Ireland. What what's your first memories of of any greyhound contact or greyhound chores that that you had? I I don't I don't really ever remember anything in Ireland pr- prior to being on a greyhound farm. I mean I I know that we didn't always live on the farm, but I, I have no memory of that in my early in my early years. Um, so when when the farm was built and then we we built a house out there and moved out there you know we we had our chores just like everybody else and they were always around pups and helping out in the kennel from uh you know helping mamas and 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 looking after the babies to helping with schooling and conditioning and keeping the place clean and mowing and i mean all the 50 thousand jobs that are on a, a farm, whether it's a dog farm or a cattle farm or, you know, whatever kind of farm it is. Yes. There's, there's yes. always work to be done. It, it never ends. And, uh, and in the Dalton it, it was, family, what were the child's, what was the, uh, what was the first chores that the kids were assigned as they were up in the three or four or five year old range? Well, prob- I mean, I don't know if you'd call it a chore, but but uh, pr- probably sitting in the whelping box with puppies, you know, you didn't have to be very old to do that. But it, it was it was a critical part of the plan because they needed to get used to being handled at a very early age. And, and I'm talking, you know, as soon as their eyes are open, just uh, getting them used to being touched, getting them socialized. Uh, it, it made everything that came after that so much easier, uh, you know, when, when they had that contact, you know, right from the, right from the beginning. And, and then as they got a little bit older, you know, our jobs were to lead break and walking and God, we walked more miles, you know, for a small country. I think we probably walked around it three or four times. <laughs> that's a real, uh, that's, that's something that, uh, the Irish folks have always kind of been known for is that the belief in um, that it's good for a greyhound to take them for good long walks. It's great fitness and conditioning work. Doesn't hurt the dog owners either. Uh, That's right. You know, I remember when my dad was was training coursing dogs and and giving them road work. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure if his doctor had said you need to walk five or six miles a day for your own health, he would have had no he would have had no uh, interest in that but you know he'll walk five or six miles a day with a dog on the end of the lead and not give it a second thought yeah yeah well that's a beautiful country to do it in i'll tell you that what uh what were your jobs at uh, racing what were your jobs at racing and coursing meetings what what particularly things did you do as a kid uh when you went coursing or to the track well, it's 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 a little bit different in Ireland. You know, when when you go to the racetrack, we don't we don't have track leadouts. Uh, you 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 lead out your own dog. So you know, when you would get to the track, you would weigh them in, and they would be put in the lockout kennels, much like they are here. And then when you know when your race would come up, instead of standing watching your dog, you're actually going down and getting it out and walking it to the box and putting it in the box. And then you run down through the infield. And when the race is over, you pick him up on the other end. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot more owner involved than it is, you know, in the States. And, and, you know, to kind of go back to what you were talking about with the younger people being involved. I I mean, you know, we had kids eight, nine, 10 walking, walking their dogs out. Um, and they're they're well used to handling them and putting them in the box, and because it's it's what they grew up with, uh, and you know, and, and they didn't look at it as work; they looked at it as as fun. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. 
So yeah, every everybody's involved. Um, you know, from that at the track, which of course is the is the the finished product to to getting them there. You know, to to conditioning them to to schooling to galloping. Uh, you know, we we didn't. I mean, when when we were galloping, I was actually thinking about that this morning. When we were galloping, we, you know, we didn't have benefit of a of a four wheeler to take the lure out. My dad would hand me the the the, the lure on the end of of the string, and he'd say, "Run out there with that." And when he was talking about run out there, he's talking about a thousand yards. <laughs> and uh, what I wouldn't have given for a four wheeler back in those oh, days. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, you think about it, you talked about being in the whelping box with them about as soon as their eyes were open. And so these dogs, and then you take them to the track. So they, they've been with you, uh, for, for years, entire life. Yeah. And and they don't have to get used to dealing with somebody they don't know, taking them to the starting box or picking them up at the lure escape. So they, they have to feel a little bit more comfortable and and you know ready to go and they just love this so much and they're with the people that they've grown up with that that's almost a perfect greyhound world if you think about it 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 really is it really is um you know i i understand you can't do that here you know because it's a much bigger operation and and you know the when when you have the the appearance of you're you're trying to have separation between the owners and the dogs. Uh, you know, once the dogs go into the lockouts, and a lot of it's for you know the benefit of of the public. Um, obviously, you know, testing is is very stringent, um, but but they do like to have a separation between the owners from a certain point until the race is over, and I understand that. Yeah, when you were. Um when you were a child with your greyhounds, are there any particular greyhounds that stick out in your mind as particularly memorable or that were some of your favorite dogs? I, I mean, from, from the time that I was, that I was young, probably, I, I, I mean, we remember, we remember Fortress back, uh, you know, back on the farm when he was, when he was a pup and, and, uh, you know, different, different dogs like that. Uh, He's one most, of my most favorites. Of the he, ones, he was a handsome dog. He he looked like a fortress. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he he really did. He really did. Uh, I I mean I I guess the you know the, uh, the the core of our bloodline you know was that Sandman Maythorn Pride litter, and that you know there was there there were I believe six or seven females in that litter, and every one of them I I mean they 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 pretty much kept us going for the not not alone themselves but their daughters and their daughters daughters you know for probably 30 years and and are still you know are still dominant in the bloodline today i mean we had we had uh slight chill uh casco lady uh strange legends bleak weather miss hillary miss peel uh you know and and pretty much every one of them not alone did they breed themselves, but but they continued on, you know, which is which is highly unusual. I, I mean, you'll get one or two in a litter. Some will some will continue to breed, but but I mean that line just kept going and going and going, and and it, it really it really did put us on the map. Well, it's the mark of true greatness, isn't it? That not only can you perform at a high level, but you can pass that DNA on, uh, so that. Uh, dogs in your bloodline will also perform at a high level. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's uh, it's not something that you can predict, and and uh, you, you know you can study bloodlines, and uh, and and it's still you know there's still that unknown factor. I mean, you you can put it together to where it's supposed to work, and it doesn't always. And then sometimes, on paper, it doesn't work at all. And here comes you know the next sensation. Yeah, that's, that, that, that puts the, me in mind of a line you taught it. me uh, some years ago. I was asking you, I, I don't remember who the dogs were, but w- one was an out, absolutely outstanding performer, and um, and the other litter mate, litter brother, same litter, you know, uh, was just average or below average. I said, John, how can they have the same DNA and uh, and, and have such difference uh, in, in achievement? And, and you said to me, 
Well, Liberace's brother couldn't play a note. <laughs> and I, I remember I, that I and laughed about it ever since. And I've used it a few times, too. I wish I could claim credit for coming up with that, but that was actually one of that was that was one that I borrowed from Don Cuddy. <laughs> uh, Don Don trained came out with my dad back in the '60s, and, and I mean they were they they were just a powerhouse team together. Uh, yeah. I, I never did have the opportunity to work with Don in the kennel. Uh, he was already gone by the time I got to the states, but uh, I, I mean that that was that was one I stole from him. I, I have to confess that. <laughs> That's all right. Well, let's fast forward a little bit and uh, uh, through your life and uh, talk a little bit about your move to the U.S. of A. How did that come about? Uh, my my first trip to the states was on a summer vacation from school when I was sixteen, and and we went to Sarasota, Florida, because back in those days we didn't have our own schooling track in Ireland. That was an inside that was an inside lure like the American system. So we would school our dogs uh, on the Irish system, then we would ship them to New England, and then they would be trucked from New England down to South Florida, where they would school on an alderate lure, because we didn't have an alderate in Ireland back then. Uh, and and I spent the first summer in in Sarasota with my dad schooling out. And that was my first exposure to the Greyhound business in the States. And then I came out several years later after I graduated high school and uh, worked in the kennel in Boston. Uh, I, w- I think I was about 18, 19 back in those days. Who did you and, work under? And, uh, I worked under Mick Darcy. Mick Darcy was our trainer up there then. And then after Mick left, there was... Uh, I believe John no I, I'm sorry I can't remember his name now um, and then after that I started to train myself and uh, and that was there at Wonderland in Boston is that correct? That was at, that was at Wonderland yeah. That, yeah that was back in the late 80s and and, and, and the early 90s and, and I mean those, those were those were good times uh, you know I, I was getting dogs from Ireland that that, could, that would make anybody look good um, I, I mean, the, we were just in the sweet spot in those days. I, I mean, the, the dogs that came out, they just, they, they ran really well. And, you know, we had a lot of, a, a lot of really nice dogs. And how long were you then? How long were you at Wonderland then? Probably about, about nine or 10 years, give or take, uh, I, until, until Texas opened up, um, and I think Texas had been running for a year or maybe two before I moved on down there. Um, you know, things had started had started to wane a little bit in New England, and and it it, it wasn't as good as it had been. You know, ten years earlier, um, you really needed to be at near the top of the list. You know, to be to be profitable. Uh, but when things took off in Texas, I mean, those first ten years were just incredible that the crowds were unbelievable i mean nobody had ever seen anything like the crowds uh the facility at the gulf nobody had ever seen anything like that i mean it was the biggest and 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 the best and it it was just a a wonderful opportunity to get to come down there was there a particular contact in texas that brought you there uh, I, I worked for a man named Melvin Cott, K-A-T-T. Uh, Melvin had, uh, had um, uh, oh God, I'm trying to think of the name of the kennel back in those days. I mean, he had contacted my dad or my dad had contacted him because my dad was wanting to get dogs into, into Texas and he was needing a trainer, so we kind of made a package deal. Well, I'm, I have a trainer and, and I have dogs, so, you know, let's get together and see what we can come up with. And, yeah. uh, and, and I came down to train for, to train for Melvin and, and, you know, that was, that, that was a fantastic experience. Uh, Melvin has passed on since, but my, my first, uh, my, my first meeting with Melvin, he, call, he, he used to call me Mr. John. He said, Mr. John, you run it like you own it and we'll get along just fine. <laughs> and we did. We never had, never had a, an angry word between us, and 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 
were successful and it was just a very enjoyable place for me. Melvin and Arlene, wonderful people to work for. Oh, well, so think- far, some great information today. I'm, I'm enjoying just sitting here listening, but unfortunately, the hounds need to take their mask out and get their paws washed and get pottied, so we will be right back after these messages. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The GPA, that's Greyhound Pets of America. If you would like information on how you can adopt an ex-racing Greyhound, call 800-366-1472. These dogs are fit, healthy, happy, playful pets, good with children, and oh, do they love lots of hugs. Adopt a cool Greyhound today. Call 800-366-1472. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You 
are listening to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory, TJ, and Kathy. To find out more about the show and what we do, please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com. That's gmgp3 at yahoo.com. Now, back to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Well, welcome back. I hope you're enjoying the show like I am. I'm just enjoying listening to John and John talk today. Uh, but the only reason why I'm here today is so I can earn my big paycheck. And with that said, I'm going to turn it back over to Mr. Parker, and let's get on with the show. Okay, thanks, Rory. Uh, John, when we when we left for the break, we had you at, uh, at uh, Gulf Greyhound Park near Houston, Texas as a trainer. What was the name of your kennel? I, I, I was training for Melvin Koss. Uh, he, he had, he had uh, a couple of different partners, and I, I trained for him for, for several years and then ended up uh, buying out a, a competing kennel. And, and uh, we started off under the name of High Star uh, because that was the name that it had when, when, I, when I bought it. And then we went several years under that, and then we switched it over to John Dalton Racing. And we and we stayed racing there for for several more years until until uh, things started dropping off and, and and then at that point you know I already had built a farm and we had moved out here and and hired a trainer at the kennel. Yeah, so it sounds like I have never been to Golf Greyhound Park. I'm going to make that put that on my bucket list. Sounds like uh when you were there, it was uh, quite the place, kind of the glory days of Texas Greyhound racing. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. I, I mean, the the, the purses, uh, you know, and and this is the, this was before simulcast and and everything that we have now. I mean, when Gulf first opened, it was just live on-site handle, and nobody had ever seen anything like the crowds. I mean, an, an hour before the, the 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 doors would open, the cars were out through the parking lot, down the streets, and back up onto the off-ramp, onto the interstates. I, I mean, the, the enthusiasm and the support uh, were, was just incredible. I, I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like the plant. I, I mean, the kennels right there beside the, right there beside the, the, the track, um, just the size of it. I, I mean, it was massive. The restaurant was huge. Um, Anything that anything that you could have ever wanted for for a, a kennel or for the dogs was at Gulf. I, I mean, the, it, it was it, it was the best I had ever seen bar none. Really enjoyable place to run. Um, can't say enough en- enough good things about it. Oh, that's wonderful. What uh, tell tell us about some of your more memorable greyhounds, either from the standpoint of uh, you know excellence on the track or favorites from the standpoint of personalities or quirks that you had that, that they had that you got a big kick out of uh i i mean we, we had we had a lot of nice dogs through the years um probably probably one of one of my favorites was a, a little female called two lace and and she went on to uh you know to be the core of our of our bloodline for several years after that she was early speed, a little bit short, you know, she'd be three in front of the first turn and, and they'd be catching her at the wire. She'd win by a nose or she'd lose by a nose, but, uh, it, it, it she always made it exciting. <laughs> uh, we had another, another dog called Rasta pup. I, I believe he was a win leader in some, somewhere in the late nineties, either, either 98 or 99. And, and, uh, he was a fabulous pup. Uh, um, I think he had for that year, he had 47 starts and, and, and had 30 wins. Um, oh, wow. you know, just kind of, kind of nerve wracking at the same time. I mean, you know, while you enjoy having the dog that's dominant at the track, you know, it also brings a certain amount of pressure with it because every time you're out there, you know, you're, you're wanting things to go right and, and nobody stays on top forever. So, you know, you know, eventually you're going to get beaten and the next young hotshot will be coming along and, and, and he'll take his place as, as it's supposed to be. I mean, yeah, 
Yeah. You know, that's that's why it's racing. Absolutely. Well, we always like to touch uh, but, on the know, pet side of the greyhound breed uh, on the show. Here, I was going to ask you a little. What was what? What are your, some of your earliest memories about your interaction with the greyhound adoption community? That probably started in Boston, actually, uh, and and it, I, I didn't actually start using the groups in a big way until I came to Texas. I, we actually did direct adoptions. Uh, in in Boston, uh, I had been on vacation in Maine, and I don't know if you've ever been up to Maine, but it, it's it's beautiful up there. I mean, it is oh, yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and I thought, if you know, if I was retiring, this is where I'd want to be. So uh, you know, we we made friends up there, and they helped us find homes for the dogs. It was up there around Bangor, and uh, we, we we'd make the drive. It was about a two and a half, three hour drive from from Boston up to Bangor and, and we would have people and they would meet us and the people that we had adopted to originally, you know, they kind of did a lot of the legwork in the same way that the groups do now. And, and we, and we started petting dogs out up there and, and just, you know, made some wonderful friends and they stayed in touch for years and they'd send pictures of the dogs and um, <laughs> just, you know, f- fabulous place. And, and then when I when I first came to Texas, we started using the groups down here. Um, we mostly now deal with uh, GPA in Houston uh, with uh, Pat Freytag. Uh, we have we use Galt um, Ground Adoption League of Texas out of Dallas with Susie McQuaid, and uh, and then um, I did quite a bit with uh, Leslie Eskovich out of Slidell, Louisiana, uh, she has, it's a gray area. You know, I, I spent several years uh, doing the hauls from uh, Florida to Texas. So, you know, Leslie was right on the way and, and uh, you know, we always had a great relationship and, you know, can't say enough about the groups. I mean, the, the work that they do is phenomenal. And, and I mean, it's, it's never ending. Um, it's rewarding. It's exhausting. It's, I mean, you know, you're, you're right there in the thick of it. Um, it's, it's, it's something that we're very appreciative of and, and, uh, you know, they, they, they don't get enough credit for the wonderful work that they do, but I I think that they have helped us in the industry survive as long as we have, um, you know, that, that was a big, Thing back in the day and, and I mean the industry tra- changed and the group stepped up and, and helped us out and we had a lot of groups that you know were either pro racing or neutral and, and uh, it, was, it was a wonderful relationship and, and I look forward to that for many many more years. Yeah, it's 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 and you you you've seen this for longer years than I have, but we've made the evolution from ad- the adoption community and the racing community being anything from kind of skeptical to, you know, open hostility to a real partnership now of cooperation, you know, united in the, in the love of the dogs, love the breed. And so it's been a win-win. And it's not only been a win for racing and a win for the adoption community, it's been a win for the people that, uh, that the dogs go to live with out, out their lives with everybody benefits from this. And, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it's a great thing that's, that's happened. And I've, I've, I'm just grateful that I've been in it long enough to have witnessed that transition and that evolution uh, from, you know, skepticism or hostility to, to, to friendships and, and cooperation, just a real partnership for the benefit of the dog. So it's been, it's been fabulous. So let's I mean, then, you let's know, start. are, Go ahead. I mean, greyhounds that are are a, are a breed that you don't run across every day if you're not in the industry, and you know, not everybody grows up on a greyhound farm. So, you know, the, the, being able to place them in people's homes, I think, has exposed tens of thousands of people to a breed that you know they probably, other than that, would would wouldn't know anything of, other than they've seen the picture on the side of a bus. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're fantastic dogs. I mean, uh, you know, every breed has their own strong points. Um, but I mean, we have them here in the house and it's always competition for space on the sofa and, you know, 
we wouldn't have it any other way. So you made your transition then from being a, a, a trainer and kennel operator to being a breeder farmer. Uh, how did you cut you? And you're there in McDade, uh, Texas. That's near Austin, isn't it? Yeah, we're about 30 minutes east of Austin. Um, you know, when I was in in Gulf, uh, you know, it became it became pretty clear that we were go- we were going to need to bite the bullet and go ahead and and, and build a farm. Uh, I mean, we had been raising on other people's farms prior to that, but uh, you know, it it just wasn't what we needed and on the on the scale that we needed. Uh, so we started, we started looking at farms, uh, and in, initially we had thought about buying an existing farm, but again, it, it wasn't exactly what we wanted. We couldn't find, you know, everything that we wanted in one place. So we decided to go ahead and, and just buy bare ground and start from scratch. And that way, you know, the, the ground never had dogs on it before. So it was fresh. And whatever facility we built would be exactly what we wanted, and and that took that took about two years to complete, um, and and you know we we live out here and wouldn't have it any other way. Really enjoy it. It's a little bitty town. There's not much in McDade, but you know we're we're close we're close to uh, Austin and and uh, Elgin and Bastrop and uh, live out here on a hundred acres with the dogs and cattle and horses and it's, it's pretty good life. I'd say sounds great to me. Now, one other thing that you, uh, that resulted from your move to Texas and your brush with the adoption community and the amateur greyhound sports community was your wife. Tell us a little bit how that came about. Well, there you go. Uh, the biggest benefit of all, <laughs> uh, my, my, my my wife Kelly, um, she actually had started. Uh, I mean, I I'm not the one that introduced her to the breed. Uh, she had started adopting dogs several years earlier, and uh, had friends at golf, and uh, you know had had adopted dogs through golf and through uh, the different adoption agencies, uh, GPA there in Houston. And, and as fate would have it, uh, several of the dogs that she adopted actually had originated with me, uh, even though they came from different, uh, different, uh, venues. Um, I joke with her that in, that it took an awful lot of planning on my part to make that happen and make it look like <laughs> an accident. Um, but we we had you know we had talked for several years on the phone and 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 had had met several times um and she would have questions about the dogs and you know she was in in uh lure coursing and you know could the dog do this and could the dog do that and i always enjoyed talking with her on the phone and several years later when we were both single uh as fate would have us uh we started to date and uh, now we're married and live on a dog farm, and it's been it's been fantastic. It really has. And the thing that I I've believe she's the, the uh, she she's the origins of your Kells prefix, isn't she? She sure is. Her, her name is her name is Kelly, and and uh, her folks call her Kell, so we 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 use we we use the prefix uh, as homage to her. That's great. So, w- tell us a little bit about your operation there. How it, uh, what you do now? You know, in terms of the how many breedings a year you do, how many dogs are typically on the farm there, and then where you run them. Well, I mean, th- things are are different now. You know, in the last twelve months than they have been ever before. Uh, the 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 capacity on the farm is about one sixty, one hundred and sixty. Um, we would have. We have a whelping barn uh, where the mamas are and, and, and the pups are born and they the pups stay there till they're about six, seven weeks old, you know, until they've had their first vaccination. Uh, that's all a concrete area um, so that it's easy to sanitize, uh, you know, which is critical when the pups are young. That's the time that they're susceptible to getting sick. So, you know, being able to clean the place is is uh is crucial 
then after they've had their first set of shots and they start to move out to the outdoors, um, you know, they're out in the, in the smaller runs. And then as they age, they move to the bigger runs. And then finally, you know, the big long runs, which are 450 feet long by 50 feet wide. And, and, you know, it's, it's just up and down and galloping all day. And, you know, the, the runs are contiguous to each other. So, uh, once they start moving, everybody in the place is going. It's 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 kind of like a kind of like a cattle stampede when they're all running, <laughs> um, and then then they come in from the runs at about 12 months of age into a, a kennel which is very similar to the ones at the racetrack, and that gets them used to the kennel environment, and then their training um, commences at that point, and they would they would spend six months in training here on the farm. Uh, before they would go to the racetrack. Um, and then, you know, based on their ability, you know, we would pick what track we thought they should start at. Major, minor, middle, you know, what have you. How do you, uh, uh, what, are your, what are some of the bloodlines that you favor in your breeding program? Well, I, I mean, like, like I said earlier, the, the, uh, the, the little female two lace, uh, she goes back to, she goes back to my dad's bloodline and, and she's probably the core of mine here. Um, probably one of, one of my top broods over the last several years has been a bitch called Kells Believer. Um, we, we've bred her to several different lines and, and have come up with, have come up with nice dogs, you know, in almost every litter. Uh, you know, not unlike the, uh, the, the Don quote, um, one of, one of the quotes from my dad was, was, uh, you breed for speed and you hope for distance as opposed <laughs> to breeding for distance and not getting speed or distance. Yeah. Um, so we, we've, we've kind of always stuck with that. Um, you know, even though the three eighths and the seven sixteenths races, you know, pay more and are more desirable. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's racing and it's about speed. And, you know, we've always bred early speed and, and tried to put a little bit of distance in, but not to ever get too far away from speed. Um, to go back to, you know, you had talked about Fortress earlier. Uh, we, we, we like to try and, and keep some Fortress in the dam lines, especially that seems to be successful for us um another another nice dog that we had was was a, a dog called kells diablo we raced him at the gulf uh, i remember him you know yeah he, he I, I i'm not sure i think he went when he stood i mean and we we bred him after the fact and when his when his uh stud career was over i believe um he was adopted out through GPA there in Houston because when I was down there last week and, and, uh, somebody that, that had handled him was actually in the office at the same time and, and, you know, got a big kick out of, out of making the connection. I can remember when you told me his name, I asked you, is he, is he a devil? <laughs> I think the answer was in the affirmative. <laughs> Yeah, he, 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 was, he, was, uh, he was something else. I, I mean, you know, on the track, he, he, was, he was very determined. But when, when the race was over, instead of, you know, hanging out there by the lure and going crazy like everybody else, he'd just go straight to the gate and he'd stand there, wait for the lead out to come and get him. And uh, it was, okay, my work is done. Take me back to the kennel and feed me. <laughs> Okay, a tough question. Best greyhound you ever bred? Uh, I, 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 I don't know. Um, <laughs> we've we've had we've had some we've had some real nice ones. Uh, some that we've sold actually at auction. Um, there there the, there was a litter uh, out of. Uh, Atascacita Leroy and uh, and uh, Tulace. Uh, we had we had one called Kells Danny Boy that we uh, that we sold at the uh, actually I think we sold most of that litter at the auction and, and they went on to be really nice dogs. Um, Brad Bolton had bought one called Kells Neon Flash, uh, real nice female in the same litter. Um, 
Akel's Arabian. That, that was probably one of my better litters that we've had over the years. Um, Atascacita Leroy was the sire, and uh, Tulay's was, was the dam. Um, so I, I guess a, any one of those, or, or possibly, possibly even Diablo, I mean, as, as a race dog, uh, while he didn't win a stake race, um, you know, just day-to-day racing, he was probably one of the better ones that I've ever had. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He, you know, I get, had, I get asked he, that on the, on the amateur sports and pet side, who's been your favorite greyhound? You've owned all these over 25 years. I can't tell you. I can tell you who I enjoyed the company the most of, or who I thought was the best lure courser or maybe the best at breeding, but it, it's impossible to pick one. It, it it kind of is. I I mean, you know, some of them some of them are around a long time, and and they you know they race till they retire, uh, and and some of them their careers are shorter, and and, and I mean Diablo had had 135 races, you know, and and then retired, and and uh, I went to stud, um, and and now he's a he's a couch potato. Um, <laughs> And, and that's that's kind of the ideal situation. I mean, a long, healthy racing career, uh, possibly a stud career afterwards, and and then and then retirement and life as a pet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, we're reaching close to the end of our hour. It's been a very great pleasure uh, to have you today. I've enjoyed it too. And um, I, I, we need to see each other in the flesh again. It's been way too long, and I'll put in a little plug. I think you maybe you and Kelly maybe coming out here to Georgia for the Aspen Asheville Greyhound Specialty Lure Coursing Meeting um, on November 14th. Uh, we invite everybody to come to that, meet John in the flesh, and, uh, Looking and, forward and maybe to lift a glass or two with him. So we hope you can come out, and um, it's been great talking to you. Rory, I'll you turn too, it sir. To Looking you. forward to seeing you again. You know, and I've really enjoyed listening to both of you, John. And, John, I do want to thank you for joining us here on Greyhounds Make Great Pets today. I want to thank our engineer, Aaron. Yes, I'll be by Tuesday morning with your baby Yoda. Also thank Casey, our producer. Everyone, stay healthy, stay safe, and remember to always hug the hounds of the world. Oh! Thank you for listening this week to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Please join your hosts, Rory Goray, TJ Beter, and Kathy Goray for another edition of our program next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.